This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is brought to you by Berkeley, publisher of Carol Stiver's debut novel, The Mother Code. James Rollins raves, Some stories are so unique, yet so universal, that it is a wonder they aren't a part of the human fable already. Carol Stiver's The Mother Code is such a novel. Learn more over at carolstivers.com. Wired.com presents... The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 428 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be reviewing the new movie Vivarium and discussing other examples of suburban horror. And this will involve spoilers for Vivarium and may also include spoilers for other books and movies that we discuss. So just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendrix, making his 21st appearance on the show. He's the author of nonfiction books such as Paperbacks from Hell, and novels such as My Best Friend's Exorcism and The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires. He also worked as a screenwriter on the recent movies Satanic Panic and Mohawk. So Grady, welcome to the show. Thank you. Then next up, we've got Anthony Ha, making his 20th appearance on the show. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for TechCrunch, where he also hosts the podcast Original Content. A chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014, and his short story Late Train appeared in the February 2019 issue of Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, and I'm excited to be breathing down Grady's neck. <laughs> and also joining us today is Lisa Yazik, making her fifth appearance on the show. She's Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies at Georgia Tech and author of the nonfiction books Galactic Suburbia, Sisters of Tomorrow, and The Future is Female. She also recently appeared in the AMC miniseries James Cameron's Story of Science Fiction. So, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's great to be back. And today's show is brought to you by The Mother Code, the debut novel by Carol Stivers. And here's a description of the book. It says, The year is 2049. When a deadly biowarfare agent spreads out of control, scientists must scramble to ensure the survival of the human race by placing genetically engineered children inside large-scale robots to be incubated, birthed, and raised by machines. Kai is born in America's desert southwest, his only companion his robotic mother, Rosie. But as children like Kai come of age, their mothers transform too, in ways that were never predicted. And when government survivors decide that the mothers must be destroyed, Kai is faced with a choice. Will he fight to save the only parent he's ever known? Karen Joy Fowler writes, Stiver's wonderful story settles right on the line between human and machine, as blame and threat and rescue and love shift from character to character in surprising and powerful ways. And Shannon McGuire calls the book brilliant, innovative, and moving. So again, the book is called The Mother Code by Carol Stivers, and you can learn more over at carolstivers.com. All right, so now let's get to our panel. Okay, so we're going to start off and talk about this movie, Vivarium. I don't know how well-known this movie is. I just came across it in the iTunes store and thought it looked interesting. So I'm just curious, had anyone else heard of this movie at all before I emailed you guys about it? Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it. it got a mm -hmm. small release, I think, right before lockdown. Mm -hmm. So what uh, kind of what was your, Grady, what were your expectations going in? Low. <laughs> <laughs> Although it does have Imogene Poots in it, and I love saying her name. Yeah, well, yeah, so it stars uh, Imogene Poots and um, Jesse Eisenberg, who are, I mean, I think terrific actors. Yeah. So I think yeah. that's probably the main thing that got me to watch it. 
Um, how about Lisa, what were your expectations going in? So I was actually really intrigued. And I remember being intrigued when I first saw the ads when it came out back in the spring. And what got me is, was there's, there's the uh, scene that they show in the trailer where the couple are in bed and the kid comes in and starts that insane screaming and they both flip him off. <laughs> and I just remember my husband and I looked at each other and said, wow, that's like the first four years of parenthood condensed into one minute. <laughs> and so I was kind of intrigued to see where it was going to take that. <laughs> yeah. So let me just, I guess, explain. And, and so actually, Anthony, had you heard of this at all? I had at some point I'd stumbled on the trailer um, and I, I'm a fan of both Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots and uh, had read either reviews maybe from the UK release or maybe a festival release. And I remember all the reviews were very negative. And so like I had sort of this, the trailer I thought was good. And then I was like, oh, I guess it's pretty bad. We'll see if I ever watch it. Really? Huh? Because, you know, in the trailer that I watched, it has the Rotten Tomatoes score kind of soaring up to 89% or something. And it says as of some date. And then when I actually watched the movie, I looked at the Rotten Tomatoes score and it had fallen down to like 72% or something. So hmm. I guess they got that. I think when I said it was, there was really only a handful of at least U.S. publications that review it. I think this was probably before a lot of the Rotten Tomatoes stuff had come in. Uh-huh. But so I think that, I guess they got that trailer out just in time. to, to <laughs> Technically oh. accurate trailer. <laughs> right. Well, I yes. did notice that the reviews, because I looked at reviews too, and I noticed that they got kind of, people seemed to be increasingly interested in it, like the longer we were in lockdown. <laughs> and, it, and so I think people were seeing that sort of connection about not necessarily the horror of the suburbs, but simply the horror of being trapped in a house you can't leave. Yeah, no there are a lot of weird, I mean, this this movie obviously was, you know, written and filmed and everything before any of the lockdown right. stuff, but it, there's a lot of um, synchronicity, you know. Yes. Um, but yeah, let me just explain the premise. So the premise is that there's a young couple and they go with a real estate agent to look at a house in this odd subdivision where all the units are all identical. And then as they're looking around this unit, the real estate agent, who's very, very odd, disappears and they find that they're kind of trapped in this time space bubble where they can't leave this subdivision. And then a box shows up on their sidewalk with a baby inside and the box says raise the child and be released and so they have to raise this weird baby who grows uh, grows up very quickly and is obviously some younger version somehow of the real estate agent so um so grady what were your kind of you said your expectations were super low so what were kind of your initial uh well, I couldn't I couldn't get over my feeling that this was sort of like Mark Zuckerberg's inner life. Like, you know, it's like I'm this cool guy and like but then I have to go live in this house in the suburbs with like a woman who's like married to me or something and and then there's a baby that appears and she wants to be its mother and like nothing fun happens and the baby's not fun and no one's fun and I just want to dig my hole. I just want to go dig my hole or build my face, but why can't they just leave me alone to dig my hole um and and because jesse eisenberg played mark zuckerberg in the social network this is yeah so that was where my head was the entire time is looking at this as like a stylized image you know abstract journey like the jodorowsky version of zuckerberg's inner life um But I also thought it was interesting that normally a lot of the suburban stuff we see in pop culture, like I'm thinking of like uh, books like um, The Stepford Wives or movie or shows like Mad Men, 
seem to think that the suburbs are pretty sweet for dudes, but like for women, they're like death traps. And I thought it was interesting this posited the suburb as a death trap that was sort of like, you know, it's bad for men and women. It's a unisex death trap. Hmm. Well, I guess, uh, Lisa, do you want to jump in there? What do you think about Grady's perception that in general, movies depict the suburbs as good for men and negative for women? I think that historically, that's absolutely been been true. And um, for instance, I, I, as I mentioned to some of you, uh, to all of you, actually, when we were prepping for the show, uh, I know from my own research that in the 1950s, women who were writing science fiction, this was absolutely one of their favorite topics was the horror of suburban life for women. And then, of course, you know, right, Ira uh, Levin, who wrote Separate Wives, is sort of laddering off that moment in science fiction history. And I think taking that insight that you really see women talking about more than men in the 1950s and 60s. And then, right, he writes at large in that film in the 1970s. And that makes sense, of course, if you think about the time period, right? Because in the 1950s and 60s and even the 70s, it was really women who were on point in the home, men that left the home every day to go to work. Whereas women, that was that was their domain and that was where they were at. So I think it makes sense that that historically we've seen the suburbs as being more of a trap for women because they've been there longer. But right, like as as time progresses and as men become more involved in the home and in domesticity in general, I think it's no surprise that for men also the suburbs would then uh, become a place of perhaps excitement, but perhaps terror as well. What did you think, Lisa, of these characters, Tom and Gemma? How did they strike you? Um, I liked them, actually, a lot. And again, I, I think it was because in so many ways, the movie felt like, again, like I said, the first four years of parenthood condensed into all the bad moments and none of the good moments. And what was interesting to me is, right, that in some ways, this is certainly a science fiction horror movie. It's all about what if, right, there really were these cuckoo-like aliens who could ensnare us and force us to raise their kids. But um, to me, what was kind of most interesting was that it didn't feel like science fiction for much of it. It felt like realism, not in the suburban <laughs> part, but in, in terms of the interpersonal relations and the way those people reacted. Like, for instance, and like I said, again, I was watching this with my husband and um the scene where uh, Jesse Eisenberg just gets sick of the kid and locks him in the car and they're both in the house and the kid is screaming and screaming and screaming. And then finally the woman breaks and she's just like, screw you. I've got to go get him. We were like, wow, that was every night of cry it out for us for years and years and years. Um, and it just felt oh too God. real. So uh, <laughs> we sort of enjoyed it because it felt so real. We were kind of impressed. We assumed someone somewhere on that production must have raised a child at some point. Yeah, I guess um, I, I guess we should explain too that so yeah, so this kid who's growing up very quickly is also super odd and just screams at the top of his lungs if he doesn't get what he wants. That's and, not the odd part because kids do that. <laughs> <laughs> and um sort of imitates but, yeah. their voices in a very yeah. creepy way. Yeah. Um and even his normal voice is a dubbed voice, at least while he's still a child. Yeah, it's really yeah. weird. Um so so Anthony, what did you think of the characters? I thought they were, you know, to a certain extent, um, blanks, you know, intentionally so, um, that you could sort of project yourself into. And that was mostly fine. I wouldn't necessarily say that either of them made a particularly strong impression. And I mean, I guess Jesse Eisenberg in particular, I mean, I think there's certain aspects of his character where he's playing and against type because he's this more of like a manual laborer versus Mark Zuckerberg. But at the same time, he's still, 
acts in a, in a lot of the same ways. And so it felt like there were sort of a, they were playing a Jesse Eisenberg type and an Imogen Poots type, and they were both fine at it. And you could believe their reactions when they were put into that situation that the whole time, I mean, I think there's a certain point where he starts to become really obsessed with digging the hole, which is maybe, which I think is still compelling, but feels less relatable. But for the, for so much of else of it, you just think, okay, that makes sense as the behavior I would have in that situation. Yeah, let's let's explain that. So so yes, yeah, so the Jesse Eisenberg character, you know, they 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 have food delivered, but the food has no taste, and there's no nothing really for them to do. And at some point, he he has his last couple cigarettes that he brought with him, and he tosses one into the grass in the front yard, and it's sort of like the grass kind of disappears in a little into a little patch of dirt, and he gets the idea to start digging and see if he can dig his way out of this you know, this, this bubble universe trap that they're in. I wasn't exactly sure what was going on at that part where the grass kind of blinked out of existence. Is there any, anything more to explain or is that just sort of weird and unexplained? I thought the cigarette I just think it was burned a, it. Yeah. Didn't it? I thought but the it, cigarette just burned the grass away. But it seemed to like happen really fast. It was accelerated. Yeah. It's a kind of magical movie, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just think it was a stylized choice. Yeah, that makes sense to me too. Hmm. So, um, so Grady, do you have any other thoughts on uh, on Jesse Eisenberg's character in this movie? You know, one of the things that I I didn't like about this movie is it had really reductive kind of like gendered roles. And I mean, maybe it was supposed to, right? Like maybe Mm -hmm. that was like, oh, the suburbs brings it out of you. But, you know, her immediate reversion to mothering the kid and his immediate reversion to I'm going to leave the house and work. um, That to me was like kind of the least interesting part of it. Like I wish they flipped that a little bit. because really, at the end of the day, this is almost like it's less of a movie with like sort of a story and conflict and more of, to me, at least, it was more of a nature film. Like, here is the life cycle of this animal, um, which was interesting, <laughs> but but it was missing a lot of the things I would expect in a movie telling a story. But it had a lot of the things I'd I'd want in a nature documentary. <laughs> I love that idea that it's a nature documentary. I think that feels just right. And to me, that makes sense of like what Anthony is saying about the characters feeling like blanks and my own ability to just sort of dump my own hopes and fears into it, right? (laughs) Right. It's it's just these forms, right? And you even get that when when she finds the book at the end and there's just like this generic man and a generic woman and a generic little guy. And I, I feel like that genericness was almost the point. Yeah. Right? Is that the suburbs turn us into these sort of parodies of heterosexual normativity you know yeah and, uh, but that's always this thing that i find really interesting about suburban angst movies and books that i think was really on display with this one because the the reassuring message of all of them is no 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 no. you're not boring the place you live in is boring. You're being made boring. You're picking these, these things you're doing. Oh, you're doing just like your parents. You've got a job and your wife is home taking care of the kids and you live in a house. Like that's not your choice. That was imposed on you by the architecture and the landscape around you. Um, so it's very reassuring, right? Like, Oh, I'm not boring. The world around me is what's making me boring. Yeah. And I, I want to come back to that idea, obviously, throughout this panel of, sort of is this movie you know fair to the suburbs or is it saying anything original about the suburbs but sticking with just the plot of the movie for the moment 
I think it, and it's very clearly divided kind of into three acts where there's sort of, you know, the, the, the early stages where they're kind of like figuring out what's going on. And then the second stage where they're kind of unraveling. And then the third stage where, you know, the climax, the climactic events all kind of happen. And mm-hmm. I actually thought, so the second, um, act ends where, um, the image in Poot's character is kind of starting to mother the child. And there, there's a scene which I actually thought was kind of the most interesting scene in the movie where they're looking up at the clouds and she says, you know, what does this cloud look like? And he says, it looks like a cloud because all the clouds in this weird fake reality that they're in just look like generic clouds. They don't have any distinctive features. And she, she sort of looks at him at some, at some point and says, I'm going to, like you're a mystery and I'm going to solve you or something, something like that. Yeah. 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 And, and so it's almost like, um, you know, the, the Jesse Eisenberg character is becoming the villain and, um, and sort of the allegiances between the characters are shifting. Mm -hmm. And then I felt like that thread kind of got dropped and the ending that we got in the third act, I found perfectly satisfactory, but it didn't blow me away. And I was left with the feeling that there was some more interesting ending involving you know delving deeper into these characters somehow that um that was kind of left on the table yeah i see your point because that to me was also really interesting was the moment it started to become kind of edible right like and the kid is 11 or 12 too so right at that sort of classic moment when it's supposed to be happening but the way there's that battle between the two men for the um for the female lead's attention and like even things like you said, Dan, like where she like takes his hand and they're both staring, kind of glaring at the husband who's being kind of a jerk and slinking out of the house. And um, yeah, it just, that was um, an interesting moment, I thought. And I wanted to see more of that as well. I, I, I was surprised when it dropped. Yeah. And she says, you know, I'm going to solve you or whatever. And doesn't, right. re- doesn't really, you know, like. No, she doesn't. And that was annoying too. <laughs> we, we sort of, we sort of get, you know, it all, it all comes full circle, which is fine, but you know we don't really learn anything particularly that we didn't already know or didn't already well, well, assume. Yeah. yeah. One thing I thought was really a missed opportunity with this movie was the passage of time. Like there was that great scene early on when they're climbing across the backyards and you see the sun going down and they're getting sweatier and more exhausted and going through the motions. But when they're living in the house, like you really feel like their awareness is kind of the movie's awareness, you know, like, like all those years, all those days just feel like one day, all those years feel like about 94 minutes. Um, Like I I was really interested that neither of them aged. Like I wasn't quite sure how long it took that kid to age because he seemed to grow 100 days total. 100 days. You had to watch, you had to watch what they were marking when they were measuring. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Got it. It's all that. So he grew about, um, so we figured it out. He was growing a year every 10 days. Got it. So wait, so even after he became like a, a young adult, there was still, that yeah, was still it, within it the hundred days. The okay. Yeah. Cause that was what I was trying to figure out is sort of like, well, you know, I got the impression it was a couple of years, but a hundred oh. days makes a lot more sense. Oh, and yeah, I retract so, my comment. Yeah. It was a hundred <laughs> days up to when he's like 10 or 11, when he's at that tweeny age. And yeah, right. I assume it's just another hundred days until he hits like 20. So I assume it's less okay. than a year. Okay. Yeah. Well, cause I mean, I, mean, I just, I just assumed it would keep, that he'd keep growing at the same rate, given that, that we see that on that chart. And it's yeah, very see, consistent when you look at that hash marks. Well, you use like, reason and math. That hole? And it doesn't, it doesn't take years to dig that hole, right? It takes. <laughs> oh, right, I didn't, right. Yeah. I didn't use reason. I used experience. We have, we have one of those growth charts on our wall too. <laughs> 
Um, I want to get Anthony back in here. Anthony, what do you think about what I'm saying about the the third act of the of the story? It's interesting because I actually, I think I enjoyed the third act more than you did, but I do sort of agree that in some ways it feels like a fairly straightforward and expected ending to the movie we've already gotten rather than complicating things in any particularly interesting way. And I guess if I had a complaint that isn't exactly the same complaint, but feels related to me is that it felt like the right ending, if it had been a short story or maybe an hour long episode for an anthology show or something like that. Whereas Mm -hmm. as a whole, the ending, the sort of straightforwardness of the ending reinforced my sense of this is a really interesting idea. Maybe not quite enough for a 90 minute film. Yeah, well, so when you say that you liked it, liked the ending more, what was it about it that you liked? Um, I liked the scene. I know that we were talking about how she doesn't really get to solve the mystery, but where she goes under the sidewalk and we just have this sort of horrific Mm -hmm. descent through all these different worlds and all these different, or I guess really flashbacks to other people who've been trapped in the same situation. And it was something where it didn't necessarily reveal a lot that you didn't suspect already and, and almost nothing that was spelled out in that scene, but I found it just really satisfying and scary on its own. And I also really appreciated or enjoyed the the very final scene where, again, it's it's exactly pretty much what you expect. The um, now fully grown, I assume, alien um, arrives at the real estate office where the real estate agent is now very old and dying and, and basically dies right there. But there are like all these really nice touches where he folds him up in this really disgusting way and yes. puts him into the body bags that we're familiar with and sits down and, you know, waits for the next customer. And there's just this really nice feeling of both eeriness and symmetry. And so even though I completely expected that to be the ending, it completely worked for me. That's interesting that you thought that she was when she's traveling through the different, you know, houses with the different colored filters on them. You said you think that those were previous occupants of the same house or because I, I thought that they were you know somehow that lots of different people were being ensnared all at once and she was oh through. i assumed it was just revealing that there are many people who have been trapped in this sort of same cycle of having to raise this sort of cuckoo alien and that this real estate that both this surreal development and the real estate agency have been there through many life cycles of i don't know maybe just the one alien or maybe others i don't know I assumed that as well. And I assumed that because when Jesse Eisenberg's character was digging the hole, right? Like the point at which he dies, Mm. or the thing that happens right before he dies is he unearths another man who had clearly been through the same thing. So that sort of suggests that multiple people have lived in that same greenhouse, right? Um, Right. But I mean, the the development seems like a new development, just in terms of the architecture and stuff. So I didn't, I wouldn't have gotten the sense that you know, years and years of people had gone. I don't know. I don't know. Grady, do you have, you're going to have to. Yeah. I actually, I actually had thought that, Oh, these are the other houses and all that. But hearing Anthony and Lisa, I'm kind of like, Oh yeah, that makes a lot more sense because, um, if there are a lot of these aliens, then there must be a lot of these identical real estate offices all over the place. And that doesn't make any sense. And, it does make more sense if this is one sort of it-like alien, you know, from, from Stephen King's It that just keeps reproducing rather than a whole race mm-hmm. of them living amongst us. This is sort of a just an interesting note. I listened to an interview with the director, and do you guys know about ghost estates, particularly in Ireland? 
Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So apparently, you know, like when there was a huge housing boom and they would build these huge, you know, they were just putting up developments really, really fast. And then you might find, and then I think the market sort of, you know, they, they, they produced more uh, housing than there was a demand for. And so you might buy a unit in one of these estates and then find that, you know, there's a hundred units and you're the only person living in this entire neighborhood. And, um, and that was kind of, I thought really interesting, a part of the inspiration yeah. of the story. Well, it was really interesting. Some ghost estates too, like they would get the city money or the bond issue to lay in roads and a sewage system and fire hydrants and all that and not get around to building the houses. They would go bankrupt before then. So it'd be subdivisions that are totally laid out devoid of houses. And there's actually one in Charleston where I am right now where they built a model subdivision at the opening. It was about three blocks and it was a scaled down version of what the subdivision would look like. So it was like, you know, 10 houses, but they were all slightly smaller. It was like the street, everything was just scaled down to sort of give you this idea of what it would all look like. And then the place went bankrupt. So all that was left on this massive, like hundreds of acre subdivision was this like mini dwarf subdivision that took up about three blocks. Well, that seems like a horror story waiting to waiting to happen there. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I actually had a book I was trying to sell for a long time that was set because sometimes people would actually live in these ghost subdivisions to take care of them and to make sure like they weren't getting vandalized and stuff. So I had something like that, but no one was ever interested. Hmm. I should have done it in Ireland. See, Lisa, what did you think about Grady's suggestion to, to have swapped the um the gender roles and so have the woman digging the hole and the man um, being well, protective of the child? I think that would certainly fulfill all of our progressive fantasies. But, you know, I mean, the reality is I was just reading that um, it was something like 43% of all American men now sometimes participate in household cooking and cleaning, which means that 57% of American men <laughs> are not doing it. So as much as, and things are changing, but you know, uh, they haven't changed a hundred percent. And I think that that pull towards that sort of traditional heterosexual sort of nuclear family like that is still pretty strong. Um, and, and obviously like statistics prove that. So um, while I agree, it felt very, very conventional. Um, I don't think that that is entirely wrong, given that we live in one of the most uh, progressive countries in the world in terms of gender relations. And we're still talking about the fact that it's really women and not men who are doing the homework or are doing second shift labor if they also have jobs. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think there's that. And so it didn't bother me that much. And I think another reason it didn't bother me that much was, again, when I'm thinking about the way the family dynamics work, one of the things that really um, surprised both me and my husband when we had a kid was that no matter how hard you fight, the entire world pushes for it to be the most conservative, normalized kind of family relationship possible. So, and it always means the mom is the one who takes care of the kid. So we do things like we tell my son's school never to call me at work and always to call my husband. And yet they'll call me like I could be doing this podcast with you and they'll call me and they'll be like, your child needs you. And I'm like, why did you not call my husband who's at home? So I, I know I'm going on and on. But my point is here, I think that there are a lot of forces that still push towards that. So for me, I think the, mo the movie spoke truth to, to power relations right now in some ways. Yeah. Well, and in, in, additionally, you also had the aliens were kind of enforcing 
Like the aliens had yes, traditional right? gender roles <laughs> as well. <laughs> Well, you know, and it's also not quite the thing that was missing for me, I think, was not quite so much like a binary switch in the gender roles. But what was and I get it, like these guys are enslaved by an alien, unless you've like got a really specific like kink, that's that's always going to be rough. But there was this aspect of just the joylessness of it. Um, And I know they have the scene where they dance in front of the car and all that. But it's like, there's this really interesting interview Stephen King gave once where he was talking about being at the University of Maine and how all his literature classes would decry the the suburbs and how stifling they were and how terrible. And that this one young woman in one of the classes was very hesitantly said, well, because they were talking about how like, oh, it's just lawn darts and pool parties and barbecues and how like stifling and conformist that is. And she sort of hesitantly was like, well, that's how I grew up. And I really liked it. And King remembers sitting there and feeling like a coward because he didn't have the courage to say, yeah, I kind of liked it too. Um, Because there is an aspect to suburbia that's really, really appealing. Like they wouldn't have been built. They wouldn't be so popular if they weren't kind of lovely to some extent. Well, see, I I thought you were going to say that the the student said, I grew up in an environment much worse than suburbia, (laughs) (laughs) to which suburbia seems like, you know, like, you you know, most people on earth, I think, would be happy to, you know. Oh, yeah, totally. Suburbia, you know. Um, But yeah, I want to get into that in in just a second. But before we move on from um, Vivarium, does anyone have anything else, any other thoughts about this movie or any of the other uh, directions they think it should have gone in or anything like that? Yeah, actually, one thing, and Anthony reminded me of this when he was speaking about the joylessness of it, um, is that that I understand that the alien child, or at least the creepy child, was was meant to be horrible and disturbing. But it seems to me what was so surprising is from the beginning they were horrible to the child, and and it's like I kept thinking throughout the movie maybe if you would like be nice to the kid for a minute, maybe the situation would shift a little bit or something. I felt like they got themselves stuck in this really antagonistic loop that wasn't doing anyone any good. And, um, and I had some moment where at least, and, and maybe there was a scene where that got, you know, on the cutting room floor where they tried to be kind to the child and were just met with more alienness and horror. But without that, it was, it, 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 that was like the one thing that kept bugging me was like, why don't you just try to be nice to it for a minute? Cause in the few moments when they are nice to the the child, like it's not as bad. It's not quite yeah. as creepy. And it just felt like they could have managed it a little better. That's my opinion. Actually, Lisa, that's really interesting because, you know, one of the things that makes me think about is what did the kid need them for? I mean, I get that it needs them from the time, like for about 20 days, from the time it's a baby till it can feed itself. But they're not teaching it anything. They're not really raising it. It can create this extra dimensional sort of like um, uh, pocket universe. What does it need them for? Right. I thought that it was, they were like socializing it, you know, I mean, obviously not. But, they, but <laughs> Lisa's right, though. Successful. They're very nice. They're very right. mean to it. Yeah. But, but he's like just, learning like language from them. Because yeah, he's, he's always That's imitating true. what they say. And so I think to, to mm. the degree that. Okay. That more, that well, more, it's a cuckoo, right? So yeah, yeah. it literally imitates them. But, but, but I think to the degree that Martin, the real estate agent, appears normal at all it's to the extent of having grown up with human parents yeah that makes sense in a house by himself he wouldn't have even that semblance of of normality i feel like this movie is also a good example of a tension that exists in a lot of 
fantastical work where there's the tension between sort of the allegorical aspect and the mm, more yeah. sort of mon- like not, but like the, the concrete world building aspect. So there's, I think as an allegory, I find it really, really powerful. Just I, I admire the sort of purity of how much it's like, screw the suburbs, screw traditional family units. This is all a terrible death trap that you should avoid at all costs. Um, I think, I, but then when you try to then, you know, make logical sense of it, I think there's like a lot of interesting details and it's not that they completely ignored that, but I think there is a certain thinness to it because they were so committed to the allegory. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, that's nice. Well, I guess, I don't know. I mean, I felt like in this story, in contrast to some of the other ones that we're going to talk about, like Stepford Wives or Get Out, which are very clearly satirical, I'm not sure if I know what the filmmakers feel about suburbia or the nuclear family or whatever. I mean, this could just be a story about, you know, it sucks to be abducted by aliens and is not necessarily saying anything about normal human society. Um, I mean, I, I guess I guess that that sort of satirical thing didn't come through very, super clearly to me in this movie the way it does in some of the others. Well, that's because there is no society in this movie. It's yeah. just them. There's no people. It's not even really a suburb because suburbs are, are are collections of people living in spaces, right? These are just houses. This is this is what I propose anyway. I mean, to me, when you think about the suburbs, right, when we talk about like the conformity or the blandness or this or that, what you're talking about are people, not, mm-hmm. yeah. not objects. And so, yeah, that for me was the weird thing, too. I'm like, is this about the suburbs? <laughs> I don't know. Definitely about not wanting to be kidnapped by cuckoo aliens. I mean, that's like the one thing I can clearly say. Well, it's funny. Actually, one of the um, interviews I watched with with the director, one of the um, audience comments was, this movie made me realize I don't want to have kids. And <laughs> and he's like, no, no, you can have kids. Because, yeah, because I don't think that that's the, mes- the intended message, you know. Uh, mm, that, Lisa, that's Lisa's... the received message. No, that's <laughs> yeah. the received message for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's interesting that that wasn't the intention. Did he want it to be about the suburbs? <laughs> I well, well, he was. I think his, from what I remember, I'm trying to remember exactly what he said. But you know, he he talked a lot about the um these these ghost estates, and I think he was uh-huh. more talking about uh-huh. sort of economic exploitation and okay. class issues and uh-huh. people being trapped in hmm. you know houses they can't afford and stuff like that. I mm-hmm. you should go actually watch the actual thing. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but. I think those were his concerns were more sort of class oriented than, um, you know, than anything else. Oh, I think if you read it through a class lens, that helps make a lot of sense of it. And I also think it makes more sense of the gender roles, you know, I mean. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. That's um, good to know. Anthony, any final thoughts on Vivarium? No, uh, I mean, I, I didn't think I had thought it was a little thin, but overall I'm glad I saw it and I probably wouldn't have watched it without having to do it for this episode. So everyone should go check it out. Yeah. I, I found it quite enjoyable. I mean, all actually all the movies that I watched for this, I thought were quite good. Um, and yeah, it's just like a twilight zone episode, which I like, I mean, maybe it should have been an, an hour long rather than 90 minutes long, but um, you know, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, it's, it's uh, it's got enough going for it in terms of, you know, good acting and interesting visuals and everything that uh sort of an intriguing premise creepy atmosphere and everything that uh i would definitely check it out um all right but so so i guess i'll just say so the movies that i watched slash rewatched for this uh were i mentioned like yeah vivarium the stepford wives get out the burbs 
which is a 1989 horror comedy starring Tom Hanks, and the 1956 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which is, I think, the original black and white version. And mm-hmm. um, so, Anthony, you said that you just rewatched Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? So what was it like going back and watching that? Um, well, I guess part of it, I was watching it through the lens of, is this suburban? Because I know that on our email planning thread, Grady was like, I remember that being more urban. Um, and so I was, and it wasn't, because we also talked about this question of like, what makes something suburban horror? Because there are a lot of movies that, horror movies that happen to be set in the suburbs, but that's not necessarily intrinsic to their identities. And in fact, I mean, certainly Body Snatchers has been, the the remake was the seventies remake was set in San Francisco, um, and so there is something about the story that I think do, it, the it doesn't necessarily rely on being in the suburbs, but there is something very specific about the effect in the fifties version where it's all these people that he knows who are I guess I'm spoiling the seventy year old movie or fifty sixty five year old movie, but uh, all these people are being replaced by pod people, and and so the fact that it's um, a doctor in this community and everyone knows everyone. And that's part of the horror that it's, I, you know, that my uncle is acting very strangely and everyone else can look at them and say, no, that's the person I know. But then there's this gradual feeling of, of wrongness. Um, and so I found it to still be uh, a very effective, uh, yeah, just, just genuinely creepy and, and exciting all the way through. I mean, I know that there's a lot of, political readings of the film that have less to do with suburbs and more to do with like communism and things like that. But um, I, I think it uses the suburban setting very well. Yeah. Let me lay out. So, so I was thinking of suburban horror in terms basically of two criteria. Um, and one is the movie deals thema- somehow thematically with the suburbs enforcing some sort of conformity or loss of individuality on people who inhabit them. And then also movies where, Everything seems nice and normal, but there are dark secrets that your neighbors are up to or they're out to get you or something. Um, and that's where the horror comes from. Um, so that's kind of what I was thinking of in terms of suburban horror. I don't know if anyone has, does that, is there any, are there any other things that people think should be added to those two? I would just say like they take it to me, suburban horror takes place in a landscape that's completely residential. There is no, there is no commercial zone mm-hmm. and every everyone there in that residential area is same class and and generally same ethnicity okay well i guess that excludes invasion of the body snatchers cuz we do see a downtown commercial area but... yeah but i also feel like that really i mean invasion of the body snatchers i mean the reason it's been remade like what 7 billion times is because it's that very <laughs> resonant thing you know like they look like people, but they're not people. They're the people you know, but they're, you know, it's that idea of, um, uh, little boxes, right? The, the folk song, like everyone's all ticky tacky, you know, everyone's sort of blandly and shallowly happy and peaceful, but really they've given up some essential part of themselves. And that's always been, I feel like part of the root of like suburban horror. Yeah, and and as Anthony's saying, it's hard to watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1956 without thinking of communism and the Red Scare and everything. I don't actually know mm-hmm. off the top of my head if Jack Finney intended that or not. Not no. at all. He actually not pushed all. back hard on that interpretation. Yeah, he did. Oh, yep. 
Yeah. I mean, Lisa, think, do, you, do you want to? Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I'd heard the same thing. He pushed back. And in fact, you know, I mean, the great thing about that movie, it's a container. You can drop in whatever fears you want. Like yeah. the most brilliant reading I've ever seen of that film is that it's actually about the danger of industrial factory farming and the transformation <laughs> of nutrition. Hmm. That's great. It actually reads really well, especially those last scenes with the pods and the trucks going back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, it's also, you know, it's one of the interesting things because, I mean, the book is also very different from the original movie even. Yeah. Um, like at the book at the end, the pods are like, these humans, they fight too much. They're too contrary. And then they like fly off into – they like levitate off into <laughs> space. It's kind of goofy. Um, but also the other thing though, um, I actually saw a read of it because I think that industrial farming is really interesting. I saw someone with a read on it that was like, Invasion of the Bonnie Snatchers is the most – immature fantasy ever because it's basically people saying no one's allowed to change if someone's different it's because they're taken over and they're a pod person (laughs) oh that's great i love that reading yeah i was like wow because i love i i really like every almost every iteration of invasion of the body snatchers especially the philip kaufman one but like i was like ooh, yeah they are really immature Actually, let me bring in the burbs into that because um, the premise of the burbs is that Tom Hanks is uh, he lives on this residential street where everyone knows each other and he's taking the week off from work and has decided to just sit around the house. And he becomes uh, he and a bunch of other residents become obsessed with the idea that the strange new neighbors who are vaguely, you know, who keep to themselves and are vaguely sort of Eastern European are you know, cannibal Satan cult type people. And, um, and, and as I said, it's sort of a com, you know, mostly a comedy, but with horror elements, but this, this idea of, you know, um, targeting people or sort of applying additional scrutiny to people because they're different. Uh, the movie deals with very directly, um, and kind of like twists. There's a couple twists related to that. Um, which I guess I'll just spoil. Uh, but so, so basically, uh, you know, at the end, uh, as a result of all their investigations, they've blown up this, the neighbor's house. And um, Tom Hanks gives this huge speech about how, you know, like, we're the real monsters. Uh, you know, they, they're, they're just a little bit different. You know, we're the ones who like destroyed their house and everything. But then it turns out there's an extra twist and they really are cannibal killers. So. I've always thought that the burbs, you know, I saw this when I was a kid and I always thought it had the right number of twists, you know, that, um, cause it's kind of a play on, um, uh, Hitchcock's rear window, which mm-hmm. I always yeah. thought was, yeah. was in need of a few more twists. Um, so I, I don't know. What do people have any thoughts on, on the burbs or this idea of, uh, you know, people being the suburbanites having suspicion of people who are different or anything like that? Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting with the burbs is, um, to me, it really highlights one of the things with suburban horror that I find really interesting, which is, so there's this idea that a lot of things in the world are supposed to be labor saving and give us more free time, right? Like, um, computers and labor saving devices and factories and all this stuff. It's supposed to give us all this free time. And, and so a lot of this suburban horror, I think, and, and not even like the, the realistic suburban horror, right? Like stuff like Richard Yates, Revolutionary Roads, to some extent, uh, Mad Men to a large extent, John Cheever, some of his stuff a little bit, but it's like, 
so what happens with all that free time? Like, you know, what, what do we do with it? And for some people, it's like, oh, well, we get drunk or we pop pills or we, but the burbs puts this thing out that I think is sort of the dark side of America, which is with all that free time, oh, we form a lynch mob. Like we decide that someone's the enemy and we turn on them. We have a satanic panic. Um, you know, it's one of the things I always think is really interesting is it in, is during the satanic panic, one of the big pushbacks against it and, and, and rightly so, but I thought it was a weird angle to take is it's just a bunch of bored housewives with too much time on their hands. They're imagining Satan everywhere. This idea that like if you have enough free time, you're just going to start rounding people up and killing them. And that's the whole thing with um, the burbs. Tom Hanks takes a vacation and he can't handle the free time. He has to do something with it. So what does he do? He's a red-blooded American male. He decides that these other people are different and dangerous and need to be destroyed. Mm-hmm. See, Anthony, did you ever see the burbs? I saw it as a kid, but didn't have time to rewatch it for this episode. So I remember almost nothing. You weren't like, Mom, Dad, it's about lynching. (laughs) (laughs) I I think I I do remember the the extra twist at the end and being vaguely disquieted by it. But um, other than that, I I couldn't. I I think the only my only other response was I remember it being much more comedic than it sounds like it might have been. It is really funny. It's pretty comedic. I had actually, you know, I remembered it pretty well, I thought, but I had totally forgotten the satanic, the satanic panic aspect of it. Um, so it was kind of, you know, weird. I, I, I had totally forgotten that it, it played into that whole thing. And was made during the satanic panic or towards the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting just listening to Grady talk about like the issue with labor saving devices and how these make us more bored. And I'm interested that all of the uh, literary and filmic examples you gave were by men because as, as you may know, oh, yeah. for the, so ever since Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, I mean, feminist researchers have amply demonstrated that the labor saving devices, and I'm saying those with air quotes around it, that are brought into the home actually radically increase the amount of domestic labor that certainly women do and probably men as well when they're at home. So prior to the advent of at-home washing machines, women spent maybe a couple hours a week dealing with washing. But once that came, they came, like now we spend, it's like 15 to 25 hours a week doing laundry. So, you know, so I find it interesting, this whole idea that somehow the suburbs leave you with free time. Because in my experience, if you ever talk to any housewife or house husband, they don't have any free time. <laughs> they are constantly cooking and cleaning and doing all those other things to keep up the suburban dream, right? So I don't know. Oh, but see, but there's actually, but there's actually a key, right? Which is that, cause I agree with you. It's actually everything I said, it was definitely from a male point of view, but there's actually a key, which is that the people, the, when women have free time, it's because they're outsourcing that labor. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, yeah, um, they're not outsourcing it. They're doing it at home. <laughs> no, no, no. They're, they have help. Right. I mean, that's usually, usually a black or, or Hispanic person. Um, oh, okay. Okay. That's oh, what I'm so saying. When you, and okay, so when you're outsourcing it to other humans. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm saying, you. so actually, cause I think what you're saying right. is really right. I mean, like, and, and I got to say, I wish we were talking more about the feminine mystique. Cause that is like a complete suburban horror <laughs> story. <laughs> Um, there are quotes yes, from that right? that still right. like chill your blood. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, no, but there's, um, but there is a thing where, where, you know, women could have a domestic helper who then did give them free time, but now they've outsourced, <laughs> they've outsourced all the work, the labor saving devices put on them to someone else. Like it's a weird thing. It's like reducing human beings to the status of, 
of labor saving devices. Well, so, we've, so, we've never so done that to women of color, have we? No, never, as far as I know. A a number of stories, and unfortunately, I only had time to read one of them. But um, in terms of, um, you know, suburban horror written by women, is there any, do you want to just talk about what, um, why you chose those particular stories to? Yeah, sure. So I had sent everyone, right, a group of stories because, uh, like I said, when um, women uh, who were writing science fiction in the 19, uh, like after World War II, so late 40s, 50s, early 60s, often actually really very much strategically position themselves as housewives who were writing science fiction and then often actually literally wrote about um, suburbia and the experience of being a housewife in suburbia. And I think this makes sense because it was a period in um, America, at least, when women were said, you know, women were told, thanks for your labor in World War II. Now it's time for you to like be a domestic patriot and go home and make the home safe for your family. And, uh, you know, and women did that. And I'm sure women had lots of different experiences. But as we know from the feminine mystique, lots of women did find this to be a rather horrifying experience in the long run. And uh, and it turns out like plenty of women were writing about that in fiction before Betty Friedan got to it in journalism. So I had just wanted to give you guys a range of stories that that really show how women have been thinking it through from a variety of different uh, perspectives yeah. for at least 65 years. Well, let me just read the ones you sent so people can look them up. So we've oh, got sure. The Heat Death of the Universe by P.A. Zoline. That's Pamela by, Zoline, yeah. Um, Sinisher by Kit Reed, Wives by Lisa Tuttle. Created He Them by Alice Eleanor Jones and The Wild Wood by Mildred Klingerman. And I had recommended also The Neglected Garden by Kathy Koja that you said you yes. actually teach in your classes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Students uh, love that story. They're really disturbed by it. Yeah, I read that probably, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. I don't know when it came out, but um, it's really 92. stuck with me all this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. okay. I didn't, I didn't realize it was that old. Yeah, it's um, actually quite old. Grady, did you recommend you recommended some books too, right? Um, Probably. Wait, no, uh, I, I have it here. So, the house oh. next door by Anne Rivers Siddons. Oh, yeah. Let's go play at the Adams and the Happy Man by Eric C. Higgs. Yeah, although the Happy Man, I mean, I really feel like it doesn't. It's more sort of like suburban decadent swingers and sort of plus the Marquis de Sade ending in like cannibalism. So, I don't think it fits in with where we are. Uh, but the house next door, definitely. I mean, um, you know, a peaceful Atlanta suburb where just a house happens. Well, it's weird because when you read it, the house just is built. It's a new house, but it's built wrong. So it's evil. But when you kind of take it at face value, it's evil because it's modern architecture in a suburban neighborhood that's everyone's like got these like sort of like older homes. So, um, maybe that's the problem. Um, one thing I want to say is I, I thought, um, Lisa's recommendations, the thing I loved about them is so many of them, the, the style mirrors the, the content, like, um, definitely created he, them. And uh, I can't remember. There was another one that, oh, wives was the other one that both start out as, oh, this seems like a normal suburban life. And then slowly these small disquieting details emerge. And then you wind up in just some radically, horrendous place but that's sort of the pattern of a suburban horror movie right it looks normal and then you look closer and it's not yeah you find an ear in a field 
Mm-hmm. That happens in that Mildred Klingerman story to the Wildwood, which if anyone actually wants to listen to, you can go just um, find it on Escape Pod. There's a marvelous reading of it there. And it's the same thing because it starts out with a family going to get Christmas trees, like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. happier and more joyful. And by the end, like it is such a morass of like just evilness. <laughs> Depravity. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute depravity. Um, I also wanted to ask you, Grady, you mentioned you recommended the Stepford Wives novel that by Ira Levin. Um, yeah. And yeah. I have only seen the movie, but um, I read the synopsis of the novel and it sounded like the ending is quite a bit different from the movie. And I was just wondering what you thought about that. Oh, man, I cannot. Rem- I remember the end of the movie very clearly. Um, the end of the book lisa do you remember what happens at the end of the book i don't it's been so long since i've read the book yeah I teach the movie all the time but i never teach the book <laughs> yeah and the book's great i really well, okay, like i mean Dave, i re- remind us what yeah what happens at the end dave oh i mean i read the synopsis i don't know if i could say exactly i mean certainly in the movie it was much more clear that the robots were robots um i think there was something like somebody like one of the characters um, runs outside and then they're like, no, like, we're not robots. And they like, are like, stab us and see, or it was something like that. Um, hmm. but yeah, I just read the synopsis yeah. a few days ago and, and just noticed right after watching the movie. And I was like, wow, this is so much different than the movie. Hmm. Um, but if nobody remembers it that well, <laughs> yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> we could, sorry. We could move on. Um, the book's great. I mean, R11 such a good writer. I just, it's been so long. Yeah. Um, see, Anthony, have you seen Stepford Wives? I did. I watched it for the first time for this episode, which is, I mean, it's sort of one of the kind of cultural touchstones that I'd missed. And um, I have to say that I was not crazy about it. I thought like thematically it was really rich and I thought all the performances were fine and individual scenes were, were mostly well done. But as a whole, I think it may just be this curse of, you know, knowing the the basic plot of the, and of the film Um that made it really hard for me to watch because I just know the whole time, oh, right, they're replacing all the wives with robots. And then the whole movie is about sort of gradually building your awareness that's, that that's what's happening. So you just kind of want to be shouting at the television like, no, 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 it's robots. <laughs> it's robots. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just to be clear, we're talking about the original film from 1975. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, thank God. Which which <laughs> I, I, you know, I just rewatched and I, I think it's pretty great i mean um the the premise basically is yeah there's um a a woman um who's a aspiring photographer a young mother living in new york city is um persuaded sort of forced by her husband to move out to this um wealthy suburb called stepford where yeah where the um there's this men's club that kind of runs everything in town and they're replacing their wives with sort of pretty demure robot um replacements um i thought it was a pretty great movie um and i also want to get into um get out before we run out of time because i thought that there, you know watching get out and stepford wives back to back there were actually a lot of parallels between the two of them that i'd never thought about before you know in both cases you have the main character coming from the city to a, a wealthy suburb and being sort of an outsider and stumbling into a plot where their um, humanity or their indiv- individuality is being erased to serve the sinister purposes of, of the community. Um, and they're both photographers. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Hmm. 
Yeah. And so both that, the movie, yeah, mind and body transfer stuff in both of them too, right? So. Yeah. Because I think in both cases, it's about taking these disruptive subjects, right? Like, like these, these feminist women and these, um, sassy black men who stand up for themselves, <laughs> right? And, and, and reshaping them in these ways that, that makes sense in terms of the suburbs. So yeah, there are quite a bit of parallels there. Yeah. It's, it's always interesting to me because one of the things I find is the weakness of Stepford Wives is, that they're building robots. Like, I find the idea that, oh, and then they're just going to get rid of the human. I mean, so much of that movie I love and, and the book too. It, to me, it's so heartbreaking when she comes back and Paula Prentice is all <laughs> robotic. Um, it's just yes. like, oh, you made a friend and it's so hard to make a friend as an adult. And then they're like turned into a sex <laughs> android. Um, and, and we all know that feeling. Um, but, uh, I always find it scarier when people are sort of reconfigured or choose to reconfigure to get along in a suburb. Like I find the ending of blue velvet where you kind of feel like, Oh, it kind of reverts back to the opening imagery and you're like, they're just going to keep living there or, you know, get out the idea that like, Oh, they're just happy like this. Like they just get the right body and then they're happy because they're younger. Like I find that much more disturbing than we turn you into a robot and then throw away the old you. Well, I'm going to tell you when I show it to my gender studies class, they would all disagree with you. They find that to be really, really horrifying. And and maybe part of it is they're younger and they don't know the story. And maybe part of it is they're in a gender studies class. So we're thinking about the way gender is shaped, but it's just interesting. Like, I just know when I show it, my students have such a different reaction to it than the way we talk about it. They see it with fresh eyes and it still freaks them out mm. like 40 years later for what it's worth. What part of it did they respond the most sort of viscerally to? The very end when all the women are shopping and they're all wearing uh, those low cut dresses. And they're yeah. like, because at that point they've studied 200 years of feminism and they're like, oh my God, it's this reversion back to these Victorian ideas, but made into playboy sexy. Mm -hmm. And they're just freaked out by that. So for them, it's that ending, just everything sort of comes together. Like it really builds and it works for them in a lot yeah. of surprising ways. And of course, they're all sad when the dog disappears too, because they're <laughs> sentimental. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't mess with dogs. Oh, yeah. But, you know, that's one of those things, though, that I always thought was really horrifying about the 90s is sort of the normalizing of porn and this sort of way the mainstream really bullied people into, hey, man, it's cool. Don't be so uptight. This is all these strip clubs are cool. You're 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 going to the strip club ironically. And it was this idea that these sort of like um that real actual human beings were supposed to be sexually aroused by almost robots, people with implants and a certain look and airbrushing and, and, and intense camera ready makeup and all this. So, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You know, it, that was almost like replacing women with with sex droids. Yeah. Well, well, because well, I had, I, you know, I thought I had seen the Stepford Wives, I don't know, a long time ago, maybe 20 years ago, something like that. And I thought I remembered it pretty well. And but the, the detail to your point, Grady, that stuck out the most in my mind is when um, uh, the, the the main character when she sees that her robot replacement that its voluptuousness has been very visibly enhanced. Actually, my students well, always notice that too. Yeah, yeah. it really freaks yeah. them out. And the uh, lack of the pupils, she loses her pupils. She yeah, has no eyes anymore that are like windows to the soul. They're just these alien holes. Well, and also because she's a photographer, that was everything she did that made her unique. That was her art and her career. Yeah. 
Yeah. And just that, but I'd forgotten the fact that when when she finds her robot double, that it's in a replica of her bedroom back at her house. Right, it's just a detail that like really I found unsettling and um, kind of mystifying. But I guess it's to uh, habituate the robot to its eventual home. But yeah, because I was because there's the scene where the guys are all they seem to be like examining the bedroom, the men's club, and I was like, what's yeah. going on? Even knowing right. them, <laughs> even having watched the movie before, I'm like, what is going on here? That's um, cool. I mean, all turned into Playboy bunnies. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's it. This is the height of the Playboy Club. This is right when Gloria Steinem was exposing what was going on in the Playboy Club, and and that's what happens in the movie. Visually, it very much they're remade as Playboy bunnies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing that's also, I mean, I, I think a part of the horror too is that, and I always thought the movie and the book too don't make as much of it as I wish they did, but they kind of can't because of the way the mechanics of the plot work is. That their husbands acquiesce to this. You know, they have that great scene in the movie where the husband comes back from the first meeting and he just wants to get sloppy drunk. It's like he's seen something horrifying that he rejects totally. And then he gives into it because, and this idea that your husband, that your spouse, that your partner only wants you as a compliant body, I think is such a betrayal. Um, that I think that's really part of the heart of that movie and book. And I mean, I think that's why I'm, as much as I didn't necessarily love the movie, um, I'm pro-robot and um, pro-murder in the sense that I think that really emphasizes the horror of it and how, you know, you sort of, I mean, that you do see that they're sort of, they're bothered by the decision initially, and then they very quickly adapt to it. Um, not just uh, the main character's husband, but also they're, at one point somebody else is replaced and you see that the husband is just like a complete wreck in the car. He's like being driven home, but within a day or two, he's, he's adapted to this idea. And when you know that this isn't just something you can rationalize away as a personality change or something, but it's literal murder and replacement by robots, yeah. I think that gives it real dramatic force when you realize what the husbands are doing to them. Well, let me ask you, Anthony, do you th- like I'm saying about the burbs, do you feel like the Stepford Wives needs like an extra twist or two since you... You, you, you I don't, found it pretty predictable, I guess, or? Yeah, but I mean, it's it's sort of, I, I can't necessarily fault it for that. It's more saying that it's it's sort of hard for me to watch it with fresh eyes because it's been, at least to me, um, in the culture so much that I feel like I know the twist already. Um, and that's not necessarily a fault of the movie. Maybe it's a fault of the movie that I didn't find as much to enjoy even knowing the twist, but I, I wouldn't necessarily it seems unfair to penalize it for having such a good twist that, you know, 40, 50 years later, I know what it is. Cause I feel like, cause watching these, all these movies together, I mean, I feel like, and I, I as I said, I liked the Stepford wives a lot, but I feel like get out is just clearly like head and shoulders above all these other movies. Um, and I feel like maybe it has all the social commentary um, and everything that, you know, the, the, it's funny, it's scary and everything, but it also has the right number of twists too, that, you know, even having watched it a few years ago, um, I was, I was, there was still a twist. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about that, but that's really clever how that was set up. And I just feel like, like the ending is basically just perfect. And so I, I would say I agree with you to the extent that I think that get out as a plot, you know, just sort of like, works a little bit better than the Stepford Wives um, in terms of having more more surprises. 
Right. That makes a lot of sense. Although, yeah, I've, I've saw Get Out when it came out and I haven't seen it since. Um, so obviously Get Out had a big advantage in that. But I do remember that it is um, just kind of, well, it's also structured a little differently too, in the sense that I think the reveal comes a little bit earlier in the film of, of I mean, the, the fundamental reveal of the horror of what is happening and this body replacement. Um, and so you have like a whole act of the film that's about letting the ramifications of that play out. And I do think I find that more dramatically satisfying than essentially revealing that they're robots right at the end of the movie. And then, you know, fairly shortly after that ending the film. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lisa, what do you think about that? Yeah. No, I, I agree. I see that too. I love get out. I think it's an amazing movie. And, you know, of course, part of it is it has, well, it has Jordan Peele, but it also has the advantage of having this huge history of all these other wonderful movies behind it that it can, sort of work off of. Um, but I really like what Anthony's saying about the way it plays out in some more detail that feels uh, compelling and interesting. And and I, I too love the ending. I, I was so relieved to have that ending and not the ending that I thought I saw coming. Um, yes. And if any of you have seen Attack the Block, which is actually another movie we yeah. talked about, right? Because um, I love Attack the Block, but the ending just breaks my heart when, when the kids get thrown in jail after everything they've done to defend their estate against uh, alien invasion. And then they get blamed for everything. Um, I was happy that um, Get Out decided not to do that ending. I think I read that originally they were going to do the more pessimistic ending uh, where all the black people end up dead or in trouble. And uh, they chose not to because they're like, for once, wouldn't it be nice if the black people won? And word, I agree 100 percent. Yeah. And and when I rented it, it said, you know, stick around after the credits to watch the alternate ending. Oh, does I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't want to see <laughs> I haven't ever watched the alternate ending either. I didn't even know there was one uh, recorded. Yeah, so or, I, or no, I, I think I think absolutely the ending, the theatrical ending is is, is the way to go. I, I wouldn't want the movie to end any other way than that. Um, but I thought it was a great movie. I love that, like, that in the end, like, the, the, the thing that allows our protagonist to sort of shift the power dynamics and, and get free is cotton, right? That that a black man uses cotton against white people. Like, that's funny. Because he pulls all the cotton stuffing out yeah. of the uh, chair and plugs his ears. So I just thought I'd make that point, that I think it's great that it turns on cotton. And that the hero who rides the rescue is the TSA. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> That was amazing. Well, and it's like, I think it was Grady said, who pointed out that the main characters are both photographers and Get Out and Stepford Wives. And that makes me wonder if if um, Jordan Peele was sort of explicitly, you know, referencing um, Stepford Wives. I, don't I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, one of the things that Lisa said is that, you know, one of the reasons Get Out works so well is it does have this huge tradition to pull on. Think of how many people refer to people as a Stepford Wise or something Stepford, and they may not have even seen the movie or, or read the book. Yeah, or pod people, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's really in the pop culture. And, and Jordan Peele's a huge horror movie fan. I'm sure he's pretty conversant with Stepford Wives. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's any, if there are other reasons, sort of thematic or reasons to make the characters photographers, like. Well, photography is about capturing an ideal moment, right? That may or may not map to the messiness of reality. And it certainly seems in both those movies, no one wants the messiness of real lived relations, right? They they want these fairy tales. Yeah, I guess just youth, eternal sexiness, you know. Also, just from a plot standpoint, you know, it it turns out that a camera flash will sort of disrupt the um, the mind's 
you know, overpowering. Yeah. And so yeah. maybe just making him a photographer also makes that a little bit more, um, you know, natural that he would, you know, the, the, the camera would kind of be his salvation. Well, also, there is an element where, and this is like, really, honestly, I need to start drinking or something just to shut up. But um, there is an element where suburbs are a snapshot, this idealized snapshot of life. Those houses aren't supposed to age. They're supposed to right. always be new. Um, you know, there's always supposed to be kids playing in the, in the driveway. It's, um, what's the place in the wrinkle in time? Camazots, Camazots, which is that when they go to the planet that it rules, um, Meg sees there's like a perfect suburb and all these little girls come out of the front doors and start to jump rope all at the same time, all yes. in unison. Yes. Um, like, you know, photos are supposed to be perfect forever. And so are subdivisions or suburbs. Yeah, and I want I want to get Anthony back in here, but I, yeah, that just reminds me quickly. I just want to say that um, another observation I had about Stepford Wives versus Get Out that I thought was interesting was that in Stepford Wives, the sinister community makes no pretense of being enlightened. You know, like they have an explicit men's club that uh, excludes women, and they come to uh, the main character's house and just all kind of talk amongst themselves and don't involve her in the conversation. Whereas in Get Out, the people have this real sort of like patronizing, um, sort of superficial compliment. They're super superficially complimentary toward Chris the whole time, but in this very like alienating way because it, it's so um, like othering. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. thought that um, that was like, like Get Out was a little bit more sophisticated, or maybe just contemporary in that way of of how people, you know sort of have this pretense of 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 being enlightened to but but aren't actually actually dave you've seen the movie more recently than i have is there a single non-white actor in the whole thing in stepford wives. stepford wives yeah yes at the very end the new couple being lured in is a black couple right dave? right bring that right right no you're yes. right yes yes mm-hmm. yes and it's very Thank aggressively, you. they're like, oh, yes, we could be a diverse neighborhood. Yeah, you're oh, yes. right. So I guess okay, that is Thank in you. Wise after. I'd forgotten yet, but there's, the scene, there's mm-hmm. a scene even before that where one of the people says, oh, when we have a, a black couple moving to town, we're so progressive. So, yeah, actually, that yeah. actually undercuts my whole point. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, Sorry. So giving Stepford Wives more credit than it. Uh, I'm, I'm not giving it enough credit, I guess. But, yeah, but I do want to get back to Anthony. Anthony, do you have any thoughts about just anything we've been saying? Yeah, I mean, that actually ties into my thought, which also was kind of, I think it's been kind of bouncing around in my head as we've been talking about all these things, which is the question of, if we talk about suburban horror as being about something inherently suburban, right, not just a setting, um, I wonder to what extent it also becomes trapped in this very narrow idea of what the suburbs is, right? That, it, that, that Grady was talking at the beginning, that it's all people of the same um, income level, usually people of the same ethnicity. Um, it's people in very traditional gender roles. And, and not to say that those things don't exist in, in the suburbs, but um, it also makes me wonder about the fact that, you know, a suburb of 2020 is different from the suburb of 1970. And in trying to capture this sort of horror of conformity and whiteness does like a suburban horror film also risk, you know, actually portraying a suburb that is sort of increasingly not the suburb that exists now. Um, and, and, or, or maybe conversely, like, are there ways in which 
these films are still can still be contemporary and different from the, the suburban horror film of, of that era. And, and so you pointed out one of, of in Get Out where it is the sort of horrors is masked a little bit more and, and like cloaked in, in different language. Um, I also think about uh, I, I watched The Purge for the first time. Um, and um, that was one where it captures a lot of this horror and, and, and race is certainly an element of it, which I think gets played up even more in the sequels. But one of the things that I, that I, that did feel more contemporary to me was the fact that actually in this little subdivision where everyone's murdering everyone else, um, it's, it's actually fairly racially diverse. I mean, they're all like affluent. Um, but, uh, that, that it's not just the sort of fifties white household that we imagine that like, that the horrors of the suburb are still there, but they kind of take on slightly more contemporary forms. Yeah, well, what, what you're saying is is reminding me that I, there was this thing I wanted to come back to, which is that is criticized, is sort of criticizing the suburbs sort of trite at this point. You know, like, I mean, Grady was mentioning John Cheever and, and all this stuff. I mean, I just feel like there's been half a century or more of, you know, of, of sort of, reinforcing this message that the suburbs are kind of sterile and conformist and, and all this stuff. And, you know, does, does, does anyone not know that by now? Like, do we need to keep <laughs> reinforcing that, that point or, or do we, I mean, maybe we do, but I, just, I wanted to just raise that question. Well, I was just going to say, you know, within the first eight years of suburban, like developments spreading across America, um, the monsters are due on Maple Street was on the Twilight Zone. So it really was right at the beginning, people were already critiquing suburbs and what they meant. Yeah, well, Lisa, you had recommended monsters are due on Maple Street, right? Is there right. anything you want to say about that? Yeah, right. Well, I think that actually what's really interesting is to think about not just the original, but also is it the 2000 remake, um, which was oh. right after 9-11. And yeah, it's a really very interesting remake because it's very much engaging there. Instead of it being aliens kind of screwing with us, it's the government purposely running a test on people. And the trigger is they drop um, um, an Im- uh, a, a family of color into a white neighborhood and it, it all proceeds from there. And so this time the aliens, are, you know, are the monsters are are they seem to be this Middle Eastern family, but it's really our government sort of trying to manipulate people's raced feelings about things in the suburbs. So uh, maybe you're right that we're thinking more about issues of color in the suburbs. I know that there was a big study done about this in like uh, 2012, I think, 2015, um, where they found that more and more that the suburbs in theory are getting more diverse, like more people of color are moving out, but they remain economically stratified and that um, not all suburbs are necessarily created equal. Maybe it ties into that. I don't know where this is going here. But Brady, it's time to start drinking, I think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I haven't seen that 2000 um, remake. I haven't either. Show. I've forgotten that. Oh, it's really good. I highly recommend it. Yeah, it's cool. But, I, I you know, the, the original, if, if people haven't seen it, basically the premise is that there's this, this neighborhood and um, – the electricity, like cars are starting and stopping and lights are going on and off in weird ways. And the people become convinced that there's, there are aliens among them. And some of them maybe are aliens. And in the end, they all freak out and kind of chaos ensues. And then there's a, a, an epilogue where these, these aliens say, look, all you have, these people, humans are so, so stupid. All you have to do is turn a car on and off and they'll destroy each other. <laughs> and yeah. it's it's very explicitly a um sort of critique of of red scare kind of right. you know mccarthyism right. um yeah. 
Oh, yeah. this one is definitely the the, the remake is, is is really engaging the sort of racism that was targeted at Middle Eastern people after nine eleven. Uh, yeah, no, so. I'll, I'll have to check that out. But yeah, so I was wondering if um, you know, I don't I don't know if if Rod Serling was sort of explicitly responding to um, invasion of the body snatchers, the, the kind of interpretation, you know, the, the, I mean, I guess you could say, I think um, Robert Heinlein's um, puppet masters ha- is a very similar premise. And I think that one was yeah. explicitly intended as a, uh, you know, the, the, the pod people or the, the, the aliens are communist or communists, right. you know? Um, and, and how much are all of those works of art responding to the one-dimensional man, um, right? That sociological study by, was it Marcuse, I think, um, which was all about the way that modern society and especially middle-class suburban life was was flattening people and turning them one-dimensional. So it was in the air at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, see, Anthony, were there any other uh, movies or books or anything that you wanted to mention? Uh, no, I think we covered everything that I watched. I mean, I would just throw in, um, a recommendation for The Purge. Uh, I think it's the, uh, James DeMonaco, who both wrote and directed, I think is a much better director than he is a writer, but it's, uh, it's a great concept and, and executed really well. And, and I was on the edge of my seat for most of the running time. Yeah. No, I thought it was pretty good. I, I don't remember it super well, but I, I remember, I, I think I liked it pretty well. Um, a couple other things on the list that we haven't touched on yet. Halloween, Disturbia, Poltergeist, Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, Grady, any, any of those you think are worth highlighting? Here? I mean, how many hours do we have? It's, you know, I mean, <laughs> Halloween's a, <laughs> Halloween's a weird one, but like Nightmare on Elm Street and Poltergeist, you know, they're both about, you know, one of the things with suburbs and HOAs and subdivisions and, 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 and this sort of controlling your neighborhood is this idea that like, we're going to write the narrative of this landscape, right? This is a place for these kind of people. And we obey these kind of laws and things look this way. We're curating this history. Um, these are new houses and all this. And I think Poltergeist and Nightmare on Elm Street are both, you know, uh, movies that say, eh, no. History doesn't begin where you say it begins. There's there's crimes in the past that have been buried. Um, and that's always when we look at a suburb now. I think like Lisa was saying earlier, we bring this whole history of critique and these stories because it's not the critique. No one reads an academic essay and, and thinks about that when they look at a suburb, uh, unless you're probably one of us. But you hear these stories all your life and these stories shape how we look at suburbs. So whenever we look at a suburb now, we're like, what are we not seeing? What's this built on top of? It's called Deer Hollow. Was there a nice hollow full of deers that are now paved over? Like we just instantly see a suburb and imagine what it's covering up. Can you explain to me, you mentioned Halloween, I think. I don't remember it that well, but I would have said just off the top of my head that that was a psycho who just incidentally happened to be in the suburbs rather than suburban horror. But is there some other well, sort of deeper level of that that I'm, I'm forgetting? The the only deeper level to it, because I would agree, I would think Nightmare on Elm Street or Poltergeist deal with it more explicitly. But then the other level, though, of Halloween is there, which is that this is a family whose kid murdered the babysitter and they sent him away and no one says boo about it anymore. Like they got rid of that inconvenience and they just merged right back in. Cause are they still, I 
think they're still in the same neighborhood. The old Myers house is like a block away from where um, the family lives now or where Jamie Lee Curtis lives now, who later we find out is his sister. So this idea that you can just erase the past by covering it up in these suburbs, I think is in there, but much less than in the other movies. Mm Mm-hmm. How about Lisa? Are you into these sort of movies like Poltergeist, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween? I've, I've, yeah, I've seen them all. And I think that um, Grady just summed it up really well uh, how to think <laughs> about them. I don't know that I have anything more to add to it than that. Uh-huh. I do well, remember watching Halloween as a kid and we lived in the suburbs of Detroit. And I remember thinking oh. just that, like, it mapped pretty easily. Do you know what I mean? So at least for me as a kid, and I saw it far too young, like seven or eight or something at a party. Um, you know, it's a Halloween to me did feel like it was about the suburbs simply because the setting, and again, I was very small and I haven't seen it again since then, but it, it left a real impression on me. Um, that setting did scare the heck out of me when I was very little. What it would do for me now as an adult, I have no idea. Yeah. I'll but Halloween it- in this, because Halloween is like a thing in the suburbs, right? And again, there's that tension between the picture perfectness of it and the dangers of it. Oh, and especially in the 70s, you guys, like, I don't know if any of you grew up then or remember it, but there were all these scares about Halloween, right? That yes. supposedly yeah. people were putting needles and poison in the candy. So all of a sudden Halloween became this really terrifying thing. And like, we would go trick or treating and we couldn't eat our candy until like we went over to the hospital and they x-rayed yes. to make sure there were no needles in it. And I mean, it was like, so I realized that's not quite the same as like Mike Myers and having someone like chase you around. But I think that same idea that Halloween looks like it's this fun, sweet children's activity. And then there's all this other sort of potential danger and horror around it. And the fact that the Halloween movie came out while those Halloween scares were happening seems fortuitous. Yeah. You know, the emergency room in where I grew up, uh, they would x-ray your candy on Halloween, razor blades and apples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I grew up... I. I was like three years old in 1980, so I don't remember the 70s particularly, but certainly when I was in the early 80s when I was a kid, that was a, a big thing still. In terms okay, of so it lasted a yeah, while. Same yeah, same in like mid to late 80s for me. Yeah, wow. and I'm, I'm wondering, was that a specifically suburban phenomenon? Or like did people in the country or people in the city have the Suburban. I think it was suburban. Yeah. I think it was suburban. And it's crazy when you think about it because – if you're a kid trick-or-treating, you have a pretty limited radius. Like, what is your walking distance while dressed as a witch? Like, you know, like, <laughs> it, and and the idea that within that radius of like a mile, a mile and a half of your house, there's some sicko who's put right. like poison or razor blades an apple. Like, you don't know what these people get up to behind their doors. I mean, it's a really paranoid notion. It is. Well, and it's also, it's not like the person, like there was a, a thing that happens where someone poisoned t- Tylenol bottles. Yes. Um, right. But it's not like, I remember who gave me this apple, you know, like, is it, like, how would you possibly get away with it? Which is, you know, why there was never any cases. But I think, I, know the- I think for oh, yeah, pun- it was not true. Yeah. Yeah. But I think for some people, like it was, I think like thinking back on it, isn't that a weird way of your parents telling you, I really hate and don't trust these neighbors? Like the ones you see me smiling at every day, yes. I think they're freaks. Like I don't like them. Like <laughs> it's, it's, that wasn't weird. my parents. That was, uh, other kids at school trying to scare you before Halloween. <laughs> oh, my parents did it. Maybe they just wanted to scare oh, us. Oh, mine too. <laughs> no. 
So, but uh, yeah, you're right. It does sort of, um, I hadn't thought about that, but that is interesting. I have no idea. I mean, I personally have no desire to live in the suburbs, but, um, and perhaps it was because of things like that, but, um, I, I don't know. That's well, I, I actually, I was going to, yeah, I was going to ask, like, how do you guys feel about living in the suburbs and has watching these movies affected your view of living in the suburbs in any way? Oh, these movies are directly about where I grew up. Like, I saw Poltergeist and that mapped right onto my house, right onto the trees outside my window, right onto my toys. It was crazy. Um, but you know, it's one of those things too that you know, like you look at suburbs and they're happy and everyone gets along and it's a community. But if you live there, you know who's suing who and who's not talking to who and who doesn't let their child leave. Like, you know that stuff. You know what I mean? Like, you see it. And so to see that reflected in the movies is tremendously validating. I mean, I guess I know Grady and Anthony both live in New York City. Anthony, you think you'll ever uh, end up in the suburbs? I doubt it very much. <laughs> um, I grew up so I grew up in suburban Los Angeles um, and I felt very strongly that um, I had to leave um, and, and that it was, you know, that living my adult life was partly about escaping the suburbs. Um, and certainly, you know, this year I think has opened up that conversation a little bit more in the sense of you watch any of these movies and you're just like, oh, a backyard. They're not just trapped in their tiny apartments. That doesn't really seem so bad in the grand scheme of things. But, but no, I think, um, in, in general, like I, my commitment to, to New York is firm. Um, how about Lisa? I don't actually know. Lisa, you live, do you live I'm in, in Atlanta. city? Or? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, um, I had a similar, I think, experience to, to Anthony, although north south instead of east west. I grew up in the suburbs of Detroit and, Yes, I would say that much of my life from about eight years old on was was devoted to figuring out how to get out of the suburbs. Um, I remember taking long walks to see if I could somehow get away from the rows and rows of houses because we were at the very. And then it was like Vivarium, where you just kept coming back to the same. House. A little bit, a little bit, but but there was sort of this hope because we my my family had moved to the very outer suburbs of Detroit, and so actually you can literally walk out of the suburbs and into countryside if you walk long enough. I mean, you got to go for miles, but it's doable. So, and I remember doing those walks, hoping, I don't know where I thought I would end up, um, Ann Arbor or something, I guess anything would have been better. But, um, yeah. And then now, of course, I'm in Atlanta and, um, firmly in the city. You cannot be more in the city than we are, uh, which is wonderful. The nice thing though, I have to say, and this is maybe a difference I have from those of you who are in New York is, you know, Atlanta is a city of trees and, not only do I really have a backyard, even though I'm right downtown, we have seven acres of common property. I basically live on a park. So it's kind of been, for us, pretty good in lockdown because we've actually had green space. Um, having said that, I would never, ever, ever move to the suburbs, um, especially not in Atlanta. Um, I don't need to send my kid to a school where they don't, where they teach creationism, you know, where they do creationism <laughs> instead of evolution. Um, right now in Atlanta, um, the public schools are all online sensibly for the fall, but up in the suburbs, they're agitating to put all the kids back in classes because they don't want to teach their kids at home. And I don't know. It just feels to me like everything that's kind of wrong about the suburbs right there. Just this, right? All these things we're talking about, the conformity and the group thinking, things have to stay the same and things can't change. And whether or not that's true, I mean, maybe people are having wonderful, rich, fulfilling lives up in those suburbs. They probably are. The houses are gorgeous. But um, eh, I don't want to do it. 
Um, all right, so we're pretty much out of time. So why don't we uh, get into some final thoughts here? So, uh, so Grady, any other final thoughts on this whole subject of suburban horror? No, the only two quick things I would say is, well, three things. Sorry, I'll make them fast. One is that I do think Blue Velvet is really interesting because it, it, sells the appeal of the suburbs as like, oh, if you dig beneath the surface, everything is hell and people are just unchained appetites. And so the suburbs make sense. Like this kind of peacefulness, it's, it's desirable. Um, there's also a really great book um, by Elizabeth uh, Holding called The Blank Wall. It's been made into a movie, I think, before, but it's from the 40s. And it's about a woman living in the suburbs while her husband's fighting World War II. And she has to cover up a murder. And the whole theme of it is just sort of like how enmeshed you are in everyone's lives. And like, she doesn't have time. Like, oh, my God, I've got to do all that. I've got to cook. I've got to clean. I do all this stuff and cover up a murder. What are you talking about? <laughs> Um, it's been reissued. It's really great. And then the last thing I was going to say, just because Lisa, you were saying you lived in Atlanta or you live in Atlanta. There's, mm. I love this thing that was on AMC a couple of years ago called Black Summer. It's a super duper cheap zombie thing. I mean, it is cheap, like really cheap, but they shoot it all in the suburbs of Atlanta. And like, there's such, I was addicted to it. It's like, it's just people running from zombies, but the landscapes they move through are so authentically suburban and that they're walking. Yeah. Check it out. They're walking everywhere. So you see how suburb gives way to industrial area, which gives way to downtown. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating, but it's a suburb, not as a cultural construct, but just simply as a landscape. And I thought it was hypnotic. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Definitely then. It must have been interesting, especially since The Walking Dead is set around Atlanta and then the suburbs and the countryside as well. Um, it was uglier, cheaper Walking Dead. Yeah. Cool. All right. <laughs> Excellent. I have to check that out. Well, no, but that was one insight that came out of Walking Dead is if there's a zombie apocalypse, uh, Atlanta is a good place to be because the CDC is right there. You just swing by and get your zombie vaccine or something. Well, given how well uh, the early um, t uh, Corona testing kits worked from the CDC, I'm I'm not sure how well that's going to pan out for anyone. But it's a good theory, definitely. Actually, you know, my girlfriend Steph, one of her friends, said, you know, they're they're um, implementing this um, COVID nineteen vaccine in Russia now with minimal yes. testing. Mm -hmm. And one of her friends said, I know this is how the zombie apocalypse starts. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Mm-hmm. Um, Lisa, any other final thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, if I can just, um, can we leave the realm of art and, and venture very quickly, just dip my toe in the realm of politics, I would point out that the sort of, we're talking about like suburban horror and the rhetoric of suburban horror has yeah. been in the news quite a bit lately yes. because Donald Trump has been attempting to mobilize that language, right? To scare, uh, what he thinks are these white suburban, uh, homesteaders, right? Uh, so he's been talking a lot about how he's going to sign executive orders to make sure that you can't have uh, low-income housing in middle-class neighborhoods, right? Because yeah. there's going to be this invasion. And ever since Biden announced um, Kamala Harris as his running mate, he's been tweeting again about um, her and Cory Booker as overseeing an invasion of the suburbs. And I think that that's very interesting uh, to think about how that rhetoric from these movies is getting mobilized right now in a political context. Yeah. Well, and how much probably his idea of the suburbs comes from maybe not these movies, but movies like it, um, yes. rather than any direct experience of what the suburbs are like in 2020. 
That does yeah. seem to be the case. Yeah. He's never lived in a suburb in his life. No. Um, Anthony, any, any other final thoughts? No, I don't think I can top that. So, <laughs> well, actually, no, I take it back. I take it back. Uh, I, I would going back into the realm of art slightly and, but also tagging off of that is, um, I would love to see, and, and maybe this exists and I just haven't seen it yet, but I would just love to see more suburban horror that actually reflects, um, contemporary suburbs and, and how they've changed. And rather than sort of this imagined 50 suburb, which Dave, to your point, I do agree. There's a certain tiredness of being like, yes, like that's terrible. Um, find more that's terrible about the suburbs of today. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a really good yeah. point. Um, and the only thing I'll add is just, again, I, I actually really liked all these suburban horror movies. So if uh, you haven't seen any of these that we talked about, definitely go check them out because uh, I really enjoyed all of them. Um, and yeah, we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Anthony Ha, and Lisa Yazik. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. See you in the suburbs. and that was our panel so big thanks again to Grady Hendricks Anthony Ha and Lisa Yazik for joining us on the show and remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you so if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks and if you'd rather make a one-time contribution you can do that via check or paypal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. I also want to thank Berkeley for sponsoring today's show. Learn more about their new novel, The Mother Code, by Carol Stivers over at carolstivers.com. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.